Hey there, friend of the pod, it's Diego. Hey, this episode of the IDEO Futures podcast is brought to you by IDEOU.com, an online school that helps leaders tackle their toughest challenges creatively. You should check out their new Hello Design Thinking class, where you can learn the fundamentals of design thinking in just 90 minutes from none other than David Kelly, who's the founder of IDEO and the Stanford D School. Now, David taught me the basics of design thinking over 25 years ago, so I can absolutely positively say that when he's your teacher, you're not only learning from the best, you're getting knowledge from the source. You can sign up at any time. Just go to IDEOU.com slash futures to register. That's IDEOU.com slash futures. Live from Pier 28 on the San Francisco Embarcadero, it's the IDEO Futures Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the IDEO Futures Podcast. It's Diego. We are here today to talk about the way to design, which is the title of a new book written by my friend and colleague, Steve Vassallo. Hey Steve. Hey Diego. Hey, welcome back to IDEO, man. Hey, it's great to be back. So Steve once walk the hallways of IDEO, but he is now a general partner at Foundation Capital, a venture capital firm where he works at the intersection of business, technology, and design. He joined the Foundation Capital team in 2007 and now serves on the board of directors of Mode Analytics, Bolt Threads, Cerebras, Forisol, Sentient Energy, AutoGrid, and Sunrun, which IPO'd in 2015. Man, Steve was such an amazing project leader and engineer when we worked together here at IDEO. He has, this blew my mind and also made me feel, what have I done with my life? You have 77 patents? 77 patents across a lot of different projects and, and they're shared with a lot of people too. So That's a lot of patents. I think I have five. No, you have more than that. I'm nah, sure. I don't. I'm not being humble. I just don't. You have 77 patents and multiple product design awards, including awards for the iconic Cisco 7900 voice over IP phone, which you will see if you watch closely in just about any movie or TV show on the desk of POTUS. And actually, I stayed in a hotel room earlier this week, which was a Bauhaus uh, hotel room, and, and there were three of them in my room. That's so, a good room. Yeah, it's this iconic design. And then you've probably sat in something called the cart chair, which was done for Steelcase which was named, among other things, Design of the Decade for the 90s. So just so many iconic things that you've done. Well, it's a special place here at IDEO. And as you know, there's just there's sort of crazy cool ideas popping out from everywhere. And it was just fun to be a part of those projects. Yeah, well, it was fun to, it's fun to work with you here. So and um, among many other things uh, that he does at Foundation Capital today, Steve heads the firm's design practice and is leading a lot of uh, broad and generative conversations among industry leaders about the art and science of building great products, which is a subject near and dear to my heart. So uh, if you haven't already, get your hands together for Steve Vassallo. I really wanna focus on this book because I've read it now, I think, including the draft, which you shared with me uh, many months ago. I think I've read it now 11 times and I'm learning a lot each time I read it, and it's a gorgeous book, which we'll get into in a little bit. But I just wanted to start off with a quote from the book, which blew my mind, and I wanna ask you about it. And it, this is you speaking, but I'm gonna speak for you. 
Designers have both a moral obligation and a unique ability to take on the great challenges of our time. That's, I think, the manifesto, uh, if you will. It's pulled, pulled from, I think, one of the most emotional sections of the book. And I, it, it, to me, it sort of is, um, it's, it's meant to be that call to action. Uh, I think it's actually struck a chord with a lot of designers because I think so many, um, oftentimes they start their careers working on other people's problems, oftentimes in the corners of uh, solutions or you know, very, very small aspects of a larger whole. And, uh, and this was sort of intended to kind of help pull them kind of out of their soup and think about the, the larger context. And I'm really curious, who did you write the book for? I mean, as designers, we're always designing stuff for people. When you designed the Cisco phone, you had to imagine all the people who might use it. Who, who did you write the book for? Who's the audience or audiences that you want reading it? Yeah. So the, there were two primary audiences. Uh, the first was, was really uh, focused on designers, currently practicing designers, who might have this itch, might have this sort of compulsion to, to become entrepreneurs, to start something of their own. Uh, but don't know what to do next. In some senses, it was sort of a younger version of myself that I was sort of writing this for. And that was certainly, I would say, if I were kind of uh, creating a distribution, that was like 60, 70% of, of the audience and the focus. Um, but what I also realized was that there were a lot of business leaders, many of them entrepreneurs, but also uh, leaders of larger uh, businesses who knew that they needed to get smart on design. Uh, they'd heard about it. They were starting to read articles about it. They'd seen it on the cover of Harvard Business. Um, they'd seen it uh, in all these places, but they didn't know what that meant. And so um, I was hoping to kind of draw them in and help them understand what was going to be required of them to help design flourish within their companies. And so it was really those two kind of almost two halves uh, of, of a whole. Yeah, those are really complementary audiences. And in a lot of ways, I think they actually capture your odyssey through life. And one thing that your bio doesn't get into is your educational background, but do you want to speak to what your educational experiences were? Because not that they're atypical of a designer because of how you define what a designer does and is, but I think they're really instructive in terms of how the book is actually structured. Yeah, the book is uh, is a creative journey of sorts. In fact, uh, there's a piece of it which I think probably connects with anybody who's ever taken the Stanford product design program around the Universal Traveler, which was one of my first um, experiences uh, kind of learning what product design was about. But my background um, isn't typical for designers. I, you know, I, uh, I, I sort of found, found my way to it through a different path. So I was a mechanical engineer. I focused on robotics when I was an undergrad, loved um, uh, systems design, sort of the intersection of, of, uh, of multiple practices. And it wasn't until I came to Stanford and literally met David Kelly at a Friday afternoon design seminar when he opened my, my eyes to the world of design. And uh, I ended up taking a, a whole bunch of undergraduate classes. I was actually there as a grad school student, but I took all these undergraduate classes that, uh, that exposed me to this. And about, I guess, a third of the way or half of the way into one of those classes, uh, Kelly basically told me that I needed to go work at IDEO that coming summer. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you had gone and taken all those courses, which is actually pretty brave as a graduate student to show up at undergraduate courses. I was the old guy in the class, yeah. or the creepy old dude. <laughs> but uh, whatever, I was only a few years older. Right. But it, for me, um, I didn't have any of those classes in my undergrad, and so I just soaked it all in. I think it was, whatever, 24 units my first, uh, wow. my first semester. Oh, my gosh. Or my first quarter. Oh, my gosh. But then, yeah, did that, came and worked to IDEO for uh, about five years, and then sort of felt that itch to go jump into a startup, and so uh, went, went on and, and, and did that later. And that's, and that's not all of my educational background, but um, gives you a start of sort of where I began as a designer. Well, and you went on to go to business school. 
yep. and round yourself out that way. Yeah, business school was an interesting thing for me because I never, ever thought I would do it. In fact, uh, when I was practicing as a, as a product designer and, and, and project leader at IDEO, I, I kind of laughed at the, the whole business domain. I think, you know, I used to joke about it. Uh, yeah, me too. And it wasn't really until I saw with my own eyes that I, I, I felt incomplete. I, I felt like I had learned all these things about what was required to build great products from a human-centered perspective. I had, uh, through my experience at a startup following this at Immersion, had solved some really hard technical problems, um, really gnarly systems design problems, but I didn't know a lick about business. And so my, uh, my business school application was, was really, I mean, it was one of the first sketches. I, I, I still joke with some folks that I think it may have predated the, uh, the D-School three-circle then with, with sort of business, technology, and design. And, and I have this like kind of janky it's in the uh, book. drawing. It's in the book, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and uh, that's exactly as it appeared. That was the, the original sketch. But, but, you know, I didn't know anything about business or business models. And today I sort of feel like I'm as excited about all three of those circles as I, as I was around sort of one or two of them when I got started. Yeah, absolutely. And well, that comes out in the book uh, very, very clearly. Actually, that's a great segue into talking about what is my favorite chapter of the book, maybe because we share so many things in common in terms of outlook on life. But it's a, what a great title. It's called Being Steve Jobs. And when Steve and I, uh, Steve Asalo and I worked at IDEO in Palo Alto back in the 90s, we would routinely see Steve Jobs over at the Whole Foods across the street getting like a strawberry smoothie. Exactly. And so we, he was like a guy that we saw around the neighborhood. Yep. Well, he had this secret office. Right. Uh, there was, I, I always wondered about that. Yeah. If it was yeah. really real or not. And the only, the only way you knew he was there, you'd see the, the Mercedes uh, uh, S-Class sort yeah. of parked out in front, beautiful. With no plates park. on it. No plates, occasionally in the, in the, uh, in the wrong parking spot. But, um, uh, <laughs> but uh, Statue of limitations is, is over on that's that. That's right. It's, it's, it's done. But yeah, no, we'd, we'd bump into him at, at uh, Whole Foods. I remember one time in particular seeing him on his rollerblades over there, and I think that must have been one of his mechanisms for not getting bothered. Yeah, probably. Just, he can just quickly, scoot away. Yeah, hey, too tall and scoot away. Note to self, I have to learn how to rollerblade. Not that people are stopping me in public. Um, <laughs> if they do, it's because I, I, they want to know what time it is. Um, but uh, there's a great image in the book, which, by the way, what's the URL for the book? We, might as well, we, we should start plugging it right now. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty simple. It's thewaytodesign.com. Oh, very elegant. Really I like it. Yeah, You can get, get, get rid of the the, and it actually redirects to uh, Way to Design. But it's The Way to Design, and it's... Uh, uh, you can get, you can download the book for free. It's a PDF. We'll, uh, we'll have it up on Amazon by, by the end of the summer, I promise. Uh, we have a lot of folks who actually want the physical copy of it. Um, I thought most folks would be happy with the digital one, but um, we'll, we'll make a physical one as well. Well, it's a gorgeous book, and this, there's a beautiful drawing of Steve Jobs arcing his way through a Whole Foods, yes. which is pretty cool. But so this, this chapter I just love because it's subtitled The Fivefold Path to becoming a great design and tech leader. And w would you mind stepping us through those five steps, which begin with, which is a great place to start, think big. So yeah, this section of the book is really intended to be the, the more instructional section for kind of everything leading up to it. And, and some of the stuff afterwards is more around the sort of inspirational expansionist kind of thinking. But um, uh, what I was trying to cover with this was, was sort of what are sort of the core five things that you as an aspiring designer founder or as a business executive who wants to get smart on, on, on design, what do you need to think about? And, and the five points, just quickly to bounce on them, think big, get smart on business, be an advocate for design, break out of the craft box, and then the last one is design a system for repeatable genius. 
and maybe if, if, if we were to just sort of spend the most time, there's probably a couple of these that I think um, yeah. stand out as, as pretty different. But I, maybe just briefly on the first, thinking big, I think so many of us as, as designers, classically trained designers, um, and even maybe before we were trained as designers, we have this vision for how we want the world to be, right? And oftentimes it starts with these little details, these sort of persnickety little things that yep. bother us that uh, we wish were better. Oh, yeah. And they, you know, they bother us like crazy to the point where we're like, well, why don't I just fix them? And, um, and so I think um, one, of the, you know, one of the components of thinking bigger here is, is just stepping away from the things that are oftentimes drawing you into the details and um, starting to look for opportunities to apply design to much larger problems, healthcare, education, uh, financial services. These are markets, and of course, you guys are doing a lot of this work today at IDEO, but if I look back 20, 30 years ago, many designers were, they were brought in as 11th hour stylists. Yeah, and or even at like 11.47 p.m. stylists. <laughs> exactly, right? exactly. And so, you know, if you, um, if, you know, if you think about it now, design shouldn't be the last thing. Design should be the first thing. And it should be, what question do you want to answer? What positive impact do you want to have in the world? And so um, asking those kinds of questions uh, is, is what we talk about in, um, in Thinking Big. Um, getting smart on business, sort of an obvious point here, but I do think, um, you know, in order to be able to, to work in the, in, in the world of business, you need to actually be able to speak the language of business. And, you know, I, on, the, on the positive side here, so many designers are afraid to, to engage in a conversation around uh, unit economics or regulatory issues in a, in, you know, in a business that, you know, has compliance components to it. And what I tell them is, guys, you don't understand. It's so much harder to learn the things that are intuitive to you for business people to figure out how to be a human-attuned and, and, and user-centered designer than it is for you to go learn about accounting uh, or corporate finance. It's work. You got to go do it, um, and you got to, as you and I used to joke, you got to kind of go and eat, eat the sprouts and do the math. Right. But um, but you know that that basis for the, for the language of business, that lexicon is hugely important. It, it allows you to to have a seat at the table and to not have big parts of conversations go over your head. So um, I talk a lot about sort of you know what's required in that component. Yeah, it's so it, it seems so foreboding to someone who hasn't been trained to read any kind of financial document to, to go and do that, right? I used to joke that before business school, I could only read the second half of The Economist, Yeah. right? And now I can, I can read the whole thing cover to cover, and I actually like reading it exactly. and looking at the economic reports because they are their own language, and a lot of they're describing complex design systems as well, right? Yeah. And so it's just another design tool, if you will. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I'm, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that I think if, if I had found economics and specifically macroeconomics before I'd found engineering, I probably would have been an economist. Me too. I might have done finance actually, yeah. which is embarrassing yeah. to say. Exactly. Right. Anyway, so I'm glad we're, we're, yeah. we're building. Oh, that was a close call. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oof. So um, maybe then just quickly, the, the third one, be an advocate for design. I think oftentimes um, uh, maybe folks would sort of confuse uh, this one for, hey, does that mean I, 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 don't, I shouldn't be thinking about design issues anymore? It's like, no, the whole point is you're not just a founder, you're a designer founder. And so you have to be that advocate for design in your company. And uh, occasionally we've seen sort of uh, through the, the 50 interviews I did to, to write this book that there are designers who, who kind of lose their design edge, who, who have, have, haven't been able to sort of scale design or scale even themselves and design within their org. So um, 
being that advocate for design, I think, is hugely important. Actually, Steve, that's a question I really wanted to ask you. How do you define designer founder? Because I know you have a very specific definition. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it is pretty fundamental to the way I think about um, designer founders. So, three things have to be true for you to be a designer founder in the way I think about it. Number one, um, you have to have built, shipped, launched things, kind of relaunched them, gone through that experience of of being a, a builder. If you were a like you know a, staying a, up all night, staying up all desk. night, sleeping under your desk, yeah, uh, and and then you know launching it, relaunching it when yeah. it doesn't doesn't do everything that you'd hoped it it it, uh, it would have. And, and this, the second one perhaps uh, is, you know, it's tied to the first one is you're approaching the world from a human-centered perspective. As you know, Diego, there's lots of ways to solve problems. You can, you can solve problems from a technology-oriented perspective. You can solve them from a, from a business-oriented perspective. But to be a designer founder, you have to be starting with, with a human. So the human-centered perspective has to, has to be true there. And then the third thing is, is really this notion that you're working on your own problems, problems of your own or opportunities of your own definition. Uh, because I think so many designers, they spend most of their careers working on other people's challenges, other people's opportunities, as opposed to sort of stopping and saying, hey, what is it that I want to do? What, what, what problem do I want to solve? What opportunity do I want to blow open? And so it's so, those three things really that define a designer founder in, in my book. Mm. Well, that's really, that's a great definition. It's really helpful because that, that key one is you're working on your own yeah. problem. That's yeah. the founder that's part. That's the founder part. Yeah. <laughs> the next one is this idea of breaking out of the craft box. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it ties a little bit to the first one in terms of thinking bigger. But I think as as designers, uh, and I, I I know I feel this compel- compulsion every time I see something that's out of sorts. I was I was there, and as designers, we are um, we're trained. We feel that sense of uh, fulfillment when we solve things at a sort of you know very very tight uh, micro level. And the I think as uh, founders, you have this newfound obligation to step back from that and to, um, to ask, what question are you solving? I mean, I, I joke about this sometimes, it's like anything's possible today, right? So literally you can engineer anything. We can put people back on the moon, wow. we can go to Mars, we can do whatever we want. We can engineer our way out of any, any problem or opportunity. So the fundamental question now is, what are you gonna do? And that to me is the obligation of a designer and a designer founder. So to me, it's, it's, it's really about that reframing, if you will. Yeah, I really appreciate that reframing. I don't know about you, but uh, when, when I go to public events or you know, like a, some kind of party and uh, people know I'm from IDEO or I get introduced as a designer, people assume the craft element of it, which I'm not ashamed of at all. And for me, it's more, it's like you, it's like metal and yeah. design engineering, all this stuff. But I, sometimes I struggle to articulate why it's more than that without denigrating the craft element, which I actually think is vital. Hugely you know, important. Bob Sutton, who was a guest on, on the pod a few episodes ago, wrote a really nice essay a few years ago talking about how the D school at Stanford, you know, which teaches design thinking, how its roots and methodology are actually in the engineering product design department at Stanford, which most people don't appreciate, which right. is a craft department. And I, I feel like without the craft element, it's difficult to do the, the bigger picture stuff. 
but you never want to drop the craft thing completely either, especially as a mindset. Yeah, I think as you're right, as as a mindset, it's it's fundamental. It's in some senses, it's an expression of of the love that you have and the passion you have for the subject that you're, you know, the subject matter of what you're working on. And honestly, like to your point, I still love designing things. I still love making things. And in fact, that modality is one that um, you know is sort of a is a place of for me of uh, of strength and and like rejuvenation. I can I can get charged up when I work on my own stuff. And, and you're right too. If, if you want to do, uh, if you want to be more craft oriented, goodness, the world needs a lot of that too. So, yeah. um, it's and, great. Yeah. Go do it. Last but not least design a system for repeatable genius. Wow. That's heavy. That's heavy. Yeah. So this one I think is, um, for me was where I, where I felt like the course of the 50 interviews helped shine some light on some new ways of thinking about design and product development broadly writ. And I think the point here is that, you know, in Silicon Valley, we we talk about product market fit, this concept, this elusive product market fit, almost as if it's it's this destination. It's like, hey, we we, we got here. We got product market fit. Go uh, triple the yeah. triple the budget for our sales team or our marketing lead gen budget and and uh, you know plant a flag in the ground and buy a Tesla. Buy a Tesla, exactly. And what became very clear to me, and it's sort of obvious in retrospect, is, is that um, we have to stop talking about product market fit as if it's this static thing, uh, as this sort of definite um, endpoint of, of sorts. Because the market changes, your customers want more, you know, the competitive landscape, it starts to encroach on what your first product was, and new technology enables new, new functionality. And so the goal really of, um, of your startup is to not have product market fit, but to have almost a metronomic march, a sort mm-hmm. of regular drumbeat of many product market fits. And I kind of joked about this with you when we, um, when we met several months ago and we were interviewing for the book, but like the, for me, when I, when I, the first time I said it, I was like, that's it. But it's like product market fit is a liquid, not a solid, right? Yeah, exactly. So you've got, um, and in order to do that, in order to have uh, design not be a definite or finite thing, you've got to actually design the org. You've got to design the organism that, um, that can have many product market fits, this, this learning organism of sorts. And, um, and that, I believe, for designers is one of the greatest challenges for them to make the leap to becoming successful designer founders, um, is how do you design that system, quite literally, for, for repeatable genius. And it's about building the teams, it's about building the practices and the processes. Um, I, th- I feel like in, in the Valley, oftentimes process is a, is a dirty word. And I learned design process here at IDEO. I remember one of, one of my intern projects was like, how do we explain our process to the outside world? Because it was so goofy. Um, you know, something we knew, was kind of tribal knowledge of sorts. But how do you, how do you talk about your process in, in a way that um, is productive and in a way that allows um, the replication of, of, this, of this creative engine? So what a provocative reframe is, you know, it's not, I'm not starting a new venture. I am designing a learning organism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe Gebbia calls this the machine that builds the machine. Uh, when we interviewed him, he, uh, that was his, that was his way of thinking about it. Cause he doesn't feel like, you know, one product releases, that's a false summit of sorts, right? You've mm-hmm. got, you've got to have the next and the next and the next. And the only way you do that is by, is by building that organism that, so changing gears a little bit but talking about solids like the design of the book you know if you probably if you heard that a venture capitalist was putting out a book 
you would probably think uh, it looks like a book. <laughs> it's like black type on white pages with a slip cover and pretty forgettable. Yeah. This book is remarkable. I, I was telling Steve before we started recording, I was on a plane yesterday and people were asking me about it. I mean, there's pages that fold out. It's got lots of different colors and it's just, it's one of those books where you can open it at any point and just start from there. And, uh, it's captivating. How did, how did the design of it come about? Yeah. What was the process to get there? So, um, for, I mean, first of all, it was, it was a subject matter. This is a subject matter for me that um, is near and dear. And I didn't feel like just written word would, would do it justice. And so I knew we needed some great illustrations. And I knew we needed great, uh, just a, a great field of the book, just, just the the, the way we were going to pull the quotes out, the way we were going to highlight uh, new ideas, the way we were going to talk about altogether controversial subjects um, and things that, um, you know, that, that, might, that might be disruptive, like this whole chapter on rethinking design thinking. And I mean, there's a lot of people who have sort of... Yeah, I want to talk it. about that in yeah. a minute. I love yeah, yeah, that. Exactly. I love that one. <laughs> um, so uh, we worked uh, at Foundation. So absolutely amazing team that we pulled around this project. So Melissa Miranda... A former really, IDEO. Former IDEO, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Hi, and Melissa. Dear friend, Melissa Rocks. And uh, Meg Sloan, who runs our, yeah. our our marketing team and a lot of our uh, amazing efforts at Foundation, and then um, Sang No, who was just an incredible writing partner for me, um, who works with us on content stuff. But we, the that kind of core team, we did all the sort of interviews and the kind of the work around um, the synthesis of the ideas, and then we reached out to uh, a group called Human After All uh, in the UK. They're based in London, an amazing team there, and we worked with them on. Uh, half a dozen concepts for for the uh, for the design physical design of the book and also the website, and then uh, found a great illustrator through them, a guy Chris DiLorenzo, who's based actually back in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, back in my old hey, hey, hey. old haunts. Right on. But um, maybe one thing just about the book, not just the physical book, but you know, we we treated this project as a design challenge, as a design project. And I think that that's something that's also pretty different from what you'd imagine in a venture office. If you came over to Foundation Capital last summer when we were in the thick of this, um, we had a war room um, covered wall to wall with with the insights, the sort of literally the kind of almost news clippings. It felt like a, a giant ransom note of ideas um, <laughs> with uh, just wall to wall. Pay um, up or we'll never ship your book. <laughs> exactly. But, um, and, you know, we, we had that war room uh, really through the whole kind of one year of, of development. And made probably 60 different prototypes of the physical book. I have 60. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I literally have almost a, a Lego SLA version uh, that Sang's brother actually made in, uh, out of New York. Uh, pop-up versions of it because I was there were some of the, the graphics and illustrations that I, were, I wanted to be even richer than they are. And so it was, it, you know, if you took the IDEO process and you said, I want to go design a book about being a better design, becoming a designer founder, this was kind of the process that I used. So I kind of, you know, benefited from all the, all the time I spent here. There's another quote in the book that some of you wrote, which even more than the quote that I started us out with really grabbed my attention and has resonated with me. It gets to the point that I also wanted to ask you about, which is this is an intensely personal book. Obviously the subject matter is something you care about deeply, but, um, there's a photo of your daughter in, in it. And, um, yeah, the, the quote was, you know, kindness as a massive force multiplier. And it was in reference to your late brother, Mike, um, who shows up in the book a lot. You yeah. talk about him and there's photos of the two of you playing. And 
Um, you know, how, how did how did his memory shape your process of uh, putting the book together and choosing what was important to, to put in it? Yeah, so I, uh, my little brother, uh, so I'm, I'm one of 10 kids. Uh, and uh, so A lot of patents, a lot of siblings. <laughs> exactly. You're a high-volume guy. <laughs> 60 prototypes. Uh, quantity has a quality all its own. Steve, Steve doesn't do single digits, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, so my, my, my little brother Mike and I uh, were thick as thieves. I mean, he was two years younger than I was. We uh, we shared a shared a bunk bed, shared a room growing up. We had this tiny little house, uh, the same house my mom still lives in today. Yeah, and you know every Matchbox car that was his was mine, and 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 vice versa. And and um, I lost him about two and a half years ago to a very rare uh, mitochondrial disorder, which it turns out he'd he'd had his whole life, but we. We didn't know it until he'd uh, turned 40, wow. or just about as he was turning 40. And so, um, and that was around the time uh, when I had uh, actually the very first kind of version of what became the book was a presentation I gave at our annual meeting. And so I was making these trips back and forth to see him back in Boston. And, uh, and, and uh, he was such an inspiration to me and through his whole life he was. But um, you know, here's this guy who was, uh, he was 4'11", um, uh, brilliant lawyer uh, and thinker, and and for me a hero because he just he always worked on things that were bigger than he was, yeah. and uh, he was just made of the toughest material on the planet, and um, you know lived through um, lots of challenges, like lost his lost his hearing when he was when he was pretty young, and and had kidney troubles in his 20s. And so I just thought about this, this, this whole notion of like, you know, of scale. And he worked, he worked on, on things that were um, of import and scale. And that was always an inspiration to me. So how does that, how does this idea of kindness being a force multiplier, how does that work? Yeah, he um, would have given me the shirt off his back. And I think because of that, and, and, and there are aspects of his personality that I think he got from, from my dad as well, that I think for me are are the sort of some of the fundamental tenets of of leadership around fundamentally being a kind human being and i think what's fascinating about all all the stuff that's going on in silicon valley today having high integrity and being kind and being direct and working hard like those are pretty fundamental attributes and as i guess as the older i get i, I appreciate them more and more yeah amen brother well thank you for sharing that yeah because um, he's Seems like he was a remarkable guy. You know, you made me think of one thing, which would be my entreaty to your listeners. So after I launched the book, uh, a friend of mine, actually a fellow designer down in L.A., sent me a photograph of uh, of himself racing his go-kart when he was a kid uh, on on one of the sort of side streets in uh, in his hometown in Southern California. And there's a photo in the book of my little brother and I racing, uh, or actually we're sitting at the time, in the lime limo go-kart that my my dad had bought bought from the local Sears and Roebuck it had been sent to the wrong store yeah it's and on it's on page 113 it's just yeah. awesome I'm looking at it right now so two very it, happy little boys yeah I think I was I think it must have been whatever nine and he was seven or something but I would love I would love folks to send me your photos of you racing oh, yeah. around in your go-kart as a kid uh, I want to I want to like have a little Twitter feed of this for, yeah by the way what's your what's your Twitter handle I didn't mention it it is just at Vasalo V-A-S-S yeah tweet tweet at Vasalo. Send me your go-kart oh. photos. I want to see them. Two S's, two L's in yep. Vasalo. Yep, exactly. That'd be so great. You know, while we're there, like how, you know, I, I can't imagine a more painful thing to produce than a book because I've never done one, but everybody I know is like, oh, 
because you can tell they always thank their families at the, at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and usually when you're thanking your family, it's because it's been, it's been difficult. How does your creative process work? How would you describe it? Yeah, it was, um, well, I think writing a book is, I mean, it's the ultimate form of exercising your slow twitch muscles. And I think so much of our lives and my life today is is reactive, is, you know, the email that just came in from, from a CEO who needs, you know, needs to talk because the VP of sales just quit. <laughs> and, uh, and Not that that's ever happened. Yeah. No. <laughs> Yesterday. That <laughs> didn't happen. But, um, no, but like that's, that's kind of, you know, I think the way most of us live our lives. And um, I, I think for me, this was so, so rejuvenating because it forces, it forces you to step away from the reactive and um, to ask yourself some of those more fundamental questions around how would you spend your time if you really, you know, if you, if you really could just work on the things that you're passionate about. And so what I found was when I, when I wrote the first draft of this presentation for our annual meeting, it's it it sort of lit a fire in me and i think and and you know this diego but like when i left ido i i felt like i had abandoned abandoned my tribe in some senses um and it was it was a very it was a very personally challenging transition because this this is such a special place everything i know about product design i you know i sort of it's, it all started here and at stanford stanford uh, product design program so I think there was, it was clear to me that I needed, um, I needed to go back and do more than just write a, you know, 20, 20 slide deck for, for our investors. Really, it was a process of uh, figuring out what, what I wanted, who would be the audience to your first question, what did I want to say to them, what did I want to go learn about what had changed. Um, and, uh, and, and so it was really kind of about two years of thinking um, and percolating on on those ideas, and then um, I knew I needed a partner. So Melissa, as I mentioned earlier, uh, was someone who I brought on board actually as a, as an entrepreneur in residence, but specifically to work on this project with me. And she was super jazzed up to do it. She's a designer founder herself. Yeah, she started, absolutely started this super cool company, and uh, which was uh, acquired by TripAdvisor. And so. I think the first step really after knowing that I wanted to work on it and having a, an outline and an audience uh, was um, who should we go talk to? And so uh, pulled together a list, a pretty aspirational one of 50 uh, designers, designer founders, scholars, historians who we interviewed and took a very, you know, as I said before, sort of a very design challenge oriented approach. So the process was, you know, a lot of ethnography, 50 interviews, transcribed all of them, have, 250 pages of notes and most of them I think all but one of our interviews we have recorded including yours so <gasps> <laughs> and then began that hard process of, of synthesizing and uh, trying to figure out what what was uh, what was what was going to be new and different and in fact the Melissa still jokes about this uh, my challenge to all of us was we got to come up with two to three ideas that Joe Gebbia would think are new, are like compelling and new, and uh, around the subject of designer, uh, designer founders. And so that was really the challenge for the team. That's so cool. It's so meta, because how many people write a book with a specific person in mind? Again, you're, yeah. you designed the book for a specific audience. Yeah. Yep. And what exactly. a way to put a face on it. You know, Joe, that's great. That's a high bar, too. Three ideas that Joe would be impressed with. Hey, so um, it wouldn't be a Steve Diego gathering without talking about cars. But I, I don't want to do it in a way that turns off our audience. Don't, don't stop listening. Uh, I could start making four-barrel uh, yeah. car sounds. Steve does the best diesel motor impression I've ever heard in my life. 
but you know, like what? Why? Why are we both so fascinated with cars? Because I think a lot of our, I, I've learned a lot about what quality looks like and good looks like, and being curious. Why to be curious from stopping and looking at stuff on the street? I mean, how does it work for you? You know, uh, I, I have to say, every time we get together, I, I can't help. I mean, I get giddy about the idea that we're going to get to talk about cars because I just always enjoy it from you. I always learn something from you and, and I always enjoy uh, just sharing ideas. But, you know, for me, I think it's it's the it's a car is sort of the ultimate intersection of art and technology and design and, you know, all, you know, everything that you business, kind of, right? Business. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and then when you sort of do the, get, you know, do as you would do is sort of unpack like, well, you say technology, but like not just, you know, like hardware technology, but now software technology and thermodynamics and fluid dynamics and embedded systems. And, and so and of course, the next generation are going to involve machine learning. And and so there, there are very few uh, things that we interact with every day that have more engineering product design business content than the car and we and we you know we we hop in it take it for granted and and that's because they're they're so incredibly well designed and engineered yeah there you go and and you get to race them (laughs) it's funny i used to want to i became an engineer partly because i wanted to design cars then i wanted to design race cars now if i were to go focus on one thing as a designer I think I would design systems to get rid of cars. <laughs> I'd like to live in Copenhagen. Cars are going to become what horses are today. It's going to be the thing you go to a track to drive, and you're not you're not riding a horse to work. I think that's right. Well, I mean, the other analog related to that is planes. You know, the first the first generation of planes, you flew your own plane. Yeah, exactly. Who flies their own plane today? A few people. Yeah. John Travolta. Yeah. Hey, uh, let's talk about design thinking, shall we? Yeah. Chapter four is titled Rethinking Design Thinking. Why does design thinking need to evolve? I think it does. Why, why do you think we need to evolve it and, and make sure we don't get trapped in our own bubble of design thinking? Yeah, I think so. Design thinking I'm, had had an amazing run over the last 15 years. If I think about so many other ideas, very few have taken off and been as sort of pervasively distributed as design thinking. It's taught in elementary schools. It's taught in business schools. Yeah, I know. Hell froze over. <laughs> exactly. It's taught at my alma mater. <laughs> so uh, it's everywhere. And I think that's awesome. I absolutely think that's awesome. But when I think about what's changed since uh, design thinking really came into the fore was this fundamental connectedness that now exists between all of us, um, whether it's us as humans or us with our devices, and the interrelatedness and interconnectedness. Um, you know, we're generating what, two and a half quintillion bytes of data every day? Nuts. You're, you're big on the Twitter. And uh, what I think it's two years worth of Twitter is more written word than, than all the books ever in existence, right? So, I mean, the, set of, the, the scale of, of data that is, you know, that is produced and uh, interacted with every day has is, is never been greater. And it's only going to accelerate. We know that. And so I think this understanding of the whole is something that design thinkers, I think, get in their specific, in the specific problems and challenges that they may be focused on. But I do believe that human-centered design needs to evolve into what I think about as humanity-centered design. Design that's really thinking about all of the interconnections between, um, between us all um, and between us and, uh, and the world that we live in. And so 
um, you know, my suggestions or some of the things that I talk about in the book uh, related to this actually really marry design thinking with another body of thought, which has actually been around for some time. Uh, many folks haven't heard about it. Some designers have, um, or they, if they have heard about it, they've maybe heard bits and pieces, but this notion of systems thinking. Um, so that's kind of, that's what I'm hoping, um, you know, I'm hoping to put uh, the design thinking peanut butter in the systems thinking chocolate. I love that. And, and again, you know, you go back to the, the genesis of design thinking and, and a lot of its roots at Stanford, and you look into the people in that Stanford design engineering department, and a lot of them were systems engineers, they like were. James Adams. Right? Yeah, Jim Just, Adams. John Arnold, who there's a bit of exactly. a little renaissance around John yeah. Arnold today. His first question it's, when he came to Stanford in the 50s was how to ask a question, right? Like, it's like, oh, my goodness, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> this is 70 years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I appreciate the fact that you are critiquing where it's at and suggesting where places to go and how to get there. Because, again, it's, it's about designing that learning organism. And I, right. I love the idea of treating design thinking as it's, it's not a solid, it's a liquid. Yeah. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. You know, you, you just made me think of one piece of uh, systems design that I think, uh, it's, in, it's in the book and it, it's, it's, uh, there's more visual components of it that make sense to talk, uh, talk about in a podcast, but there's this concept of the iceberg model that I draw folks to and, and I think has been probably one of the most talked about components of the book. And it really, I think, speaks to, to me in some ways that are around this notion and, and just the iceberg. Obviously, everyone knows sort of the small piece of the, the, the berg that's above the waterline. And in this notion is really sort of events, like the part of the iceberg that's above is, is the things that, that we see on a day-to-day -day basis, sort of the hurly-burly of life. And so many of us are reacting to those events, that sort of the piece of the, of the iceberg above the waterline. When when actually what we need to be doing is looking underneath the waterline for the patterns and then the structures and then the values. And I kind of go through this and you know, give a few examples in the book. But, but what I think is really important here is, is that the challenge for designers and designer founders is that, again, we're tempted to react to events. We're tempted to focus our business efforts and our design um, resources on events as opposed to looking for the patterns and the structures that we can, that we can apply our efforts to that will actually result in new events and better events and the behaviors that we're hoping to see. Um, so that's, it's, you know, one of the areas I think that um, I'm excited about in the book that sort of, you know, brings these two worlds together. I hope you write another book. It just occurred to me. I can't wait to, to hear what the sequel I, is. I have an idea. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, let's get this one out into the world and everywhere so that people can all look forward to the, to the, the sequel. I can't, I can't wait to read that one too. Hey, I, I wanted to end with one last question. So, so for people who are, you know, maybe they're in a startup or maybe they're thinking of starting a startup or they're thinking of making a change in their life so they can start to do some of the things that you've articulated and live that way, how should they start? I mean, beyond reading your book, what, what would be, you know, one concrete thing that you suggest that people do? Start something on their own or? Yeah, start something on their own, build something, be that kind of creator like, like you've done. You've, yeah. you've built so many things from products to companies, and now you're helping other people build companies. Like, what's, what's the place to start? Because it, it can be so hard to know how to get going, even though you know yeah. exactly where you want to go and you can see the North Star. But yeah. how do you get going? Uh, it's a great question, and I think the the way I think about it, and, and maybe this is too cute, but is to start with your strengths. And I think, um, you know, so much of our our world is around sort of, hey, here's 
here's all the things that you know you're not doing right or here are the things here are the our educational systems are around sort of balancing the the things that you are good at but then sort of making sure that you have to do all these other 50 things um, to kind of you know get the grade or, or or matriculate and I think when I see people and entrepreneurs focus on their strengths and then look for ways to complement those strengths with other people's strengths and build teams that are comprehensive in terms of their coverage, that's when I see really good stuff happen. Um, and that intellectual honesty around what are you good at? What are you passionate about? What are the things that you know, you're curious about but, but maybe need to go get smart on? Like we were talking before about, hey, maybe I need to go learn more about finance yeah. or accounting. And then also be honest with yourself around the stuff that you're not curious about and not going to get smart on and therefore go get a co-founder. <laughs> go get go get someone who is passionate about those things and does live and breathe those things. So I, I guess I'd say focus on your strengths and figure out ways of complementing those with, with folks who have the strengths in those adjacent and complementary spaces. Yeah, build the team to go design the learning. Yeah. The learning organism. Well, that I mean, that's the system for repeatable genius, right? This is yeah. this is what this is what Jobs did at Apple, and it's, you know, it's it's one of the things that I most admire about about that organ about that organism. Well, Steve, it's so great to have you here at IDEO. I've loved speaking with you. We got to do it more. I learned so much by listening to you, and so here's what I want to do: because you're an IDEO alum, and because we're soul brothers, I want to do the uh, the final closing of the pod. In collaboration with you. Oh, Norm- normally, I get to say the whole thing, Ooh. but we can do it together. How's that? I love that? that. All right. So our, we usually end with a Perry Claibonism, which is <clears> don't get ready, get started. I love that. Yeah. So do you want to do the get started or the don't get ready? I'll do the second part. Okay. So one last time, the URL is? Thewaytodesign.com. I love it. It's a great book. Go get it. It's free for now as a PDF. All right. So here we go. I'm going to start. You'll, you'll take us home. Don't get ready. Get started.